You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. I was actually reflecting on the way in this morning. What a great pleasure it is to be at this particular church and to preach with and for you guys. I've got the great pleasure and privilege of uh, guiding our interns and by the grace of God, we might have up to eight interns this year, but I've had the, the pleasure of guiding them through their first sermons. And one of the things that we constantly tell them is that we're actually in a congregation that both loves the Word and loves you guys. And so not only do you have a great challenge to preach the Word because they'll want to hear it, but also they've been praying for you and they're going to encourage you. They're for you. And that's not the case everywhere. And so I was just reflecting on the way and, ah, it's so good to be part of a, a church that's for us and that wants to learn the Scriptures. So now that I've butted you guys up, let's jump into the Psalms. Psalm 61 is what we're going to be heading into today. And it has been such a great source of encouragement for me. It was a John Calvin who remarked about the Psalm that it is like a pearl. It is small but precious. It's only eight passages long, eight verses long, but there's so much packed in here. Here's, here's where it starts going for me. Have you ever experienced anxiety, like deep anxiety? I'm not a naturally anxious person. I don't experience pangs of anxiety. It's not something that is a regular occurrence for me, but I remember the first time that I experienced overwhelming burden of anxiety. It was about two years ago, and a friend of mine and I, we decided to run a triathlon. And uh, it wasn't that that gave me anxiety. Um, I actually like doing a lot of the stuff in the triathlon. I've run before. I like cycling. Cycling is what I do to relax, like long rides. But um, I'm not so great at swimming. The first time that I went swimming with my friend, he described my style of swimming like a drowned bear in jello. Uh, just trying to make its way to the end of the pool. So I wasn't feeling very confident about my swimming stroke. So what we'd do, we'd wake up early and we'd go to the pool and we'd swim and we'd swim and we'd swim and we'd get better at it. I had to run, uh, swim 600 metres to finish the triathlon. And eventually what we did was we knew that we had to go and swim outdoors because triathlons are outside. They're not in pools. They're not in these nice market lanes. You have to swim in the ocean and uh, so we had to try that. So we decided we'd go down to Williamstown and we'd swim between the rocks because at least that sort of feels safe, even though it probably isn't. And so we, we head out there one day. We get to Williamstown and um, my friend and I, we sort of like make our way out to the rocks and we start swimming in between. And my friend's a stronger swimmer than I. So suddenly he's out of sight and I can't see him and I keep looking around and I'm like, okay, well, it's, it's fine. He's a stronger swimmer, whatever. And out of the corner of my ear, I hear this whirring noise like a helicopter. And before I could even stop to think about what was going on, my mind had already convinced me that the helicopter was coming because a shark was in the water and had eaten my friend. And the helicopter was trying to put down a rope to grab me, but it couldn't do that. And so my heart rate, which was already racing because I'm trying to swim in the ocean anyway and make it to the other side, is like beating like crazy. And my swimming stroke goes out the window. And so I'm doing this half breaststroke, half doggy paddle, trying to make it, which which doesn't even work anyway, you just go around in circles, right? And eventually I made it to the rocks, and I'm literally lying on my back with my heart beating through my chest, and I'm just incapable of doing anything. I'm fit, I'm trained, and absolutely incapacitated. 
Couldn't, I couldn't swim anymore. I got the shakes. And th- the thing is, there was no shark in the water. There was no helicopter. None of it was true. And my mind had created this scenario and anxiety had just taken over. It's a powerful emotion. And now, that's not even saying that's real. There's anxiety is, is a good emotion that God uses to warn us of things. If a bear is chasing you, you should be slightly anxious. If you're in the woods and you run out of food and fire, anxiety is a good reaction to have, right? You don't want to be, oh, a bear, oh, I guess that's fine, right? You want to be, like, run away. And so it's, it's good. It's something that God uses to make us hyper aware of our situations and our, our state. And it's out of that that David writes Psalm 61, a psalm where he is hyper aware of his physical, emotional, and spiritual state before God. The best scholarship that we have suggests that David wrote this psalm whilst he was in exile as his son hunted him. Absalom was um, David's son and we we pick this up from the narrative that David was probably running away from Absalom as he wrote this. Absalom had killed David's oldest son, Amnon, and we pick up the narrative in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 15, um, I don't know what it is on the pew Bibles, but you can follow along on the screen. It says this, In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him saying, What town are you from? And he would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom said, If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and they would receive justice. So Absalom starts undermining David. And then only a couple of verses later, in, in verse 10, Absalom takes over. Absalom sent secret messages throughout the tribes of Israel to say, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests, and they went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. But whilst Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. And a messenger came and told David, The hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin to us and put the city to the sword. That's the context from which... David writes this psalm. He's been banished from the city of Jerusalem, hunted by his son, who has already put his elder son to death, only a couple of chapters earlier. And I find it really interesting, the words that David writes to start his psalm. This is the first two verses. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you, and I call as my heart grows faint. Here's the thing about any God-fearing Jew. Jerusalem was the center of the world for them. That's where the temple was. 
For every Jew, you wanted to be as close as you could to the temple. To be far away from the temple was like being far away from God. It was a world within a world. For David to write that he was at the ends of the earth, it's because he has no access to the temple, no access to the resting place of God. So David writes this psalm as someone who's been banished and exiled from God's presence itself. He cannot meet with God. He cannot sit with God. He has no rest with God. He has no place with God. He has been exiled from the very presence of God on the earth. And therefore his heart cries out. And do you notice something? As David is filled with trouble and toil and suffering, his prayers don't become weaker and weaker. No, 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 no. They became stronger and more heartfelt and more dependent upon God. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. My heart is faint and I'm not crying out to anyone else. I must cry out to you. I've been exiled from Jerusalem. My son is hunting me. He's on his knees crying out to God. When is the last time that you are brought to tears in your own prayer life? When is the last time that you were on your knees crying out to God because you knew He was the only one who could fix this? Not a feeling, not this emotion that God, oh, maybe you... No, no, I know for certain that God, the King, the Creator, is the only one who can solve this problem. See, our lack of emotion often just reveals this deep vein of self-sufficiency that we have. I can get that done. Where is God? What is he up to? What is he doing? It doesn't matter. I'll finish it. I'll get it done. I can do it. And David says, no, I cannot get this done. I do not have the power. I do not have the strength. I do not have the courage to get this done. I must cry out to God. And here's the incredible thing. Even if we were banished to the very ends of the earth, where there is unknown and uncharted waters, even if we were carried to a place far, far away where their light is dim and our friends and our family are far, God is still there, prayer is still available and is still a powerful means of grace for us. For every single person, prayer is always available. There is no place that we can be sent, the ends of the earth, far away from the temple, that God will not be there. He is the king of all creation. The waters charted and unknown. Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he said it like this. There are difficulties in which the true Christian is brought into that no human hand can remove. There are times when we are sighing after spiritual mercies, when we are groaning under the withdrawal of God's countenance, when our sins are hunting us like a pack of wolves, when afflictions are rolling over us like huge billows, when faith is little and fear is great, when hope is dim and doubt becomes terrible and dark, when we are far away from human hell, but, blessed be God, even then we may cry unto Him. Suffering, affliction, they're a breeding ground for discovering God's mercy and His presence. Because that's the interesting thing, isn't it? If you pick up the narrative in Second Samuel, you'll quickly discover that David's not alone. 
David has people who surround him. He has soldiers, the king's men around him. He has priests around him. He has trusted men around him and they can do nothing. And David's the king. He's a person of importance and power. He's the chosen one, the one that God has raised up to be the king of Israel. And yet he doesn't cry out to himself. He doesn't cry out to his armies. He doesn't cry out to his men. No, 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 no. This is something that only God himself can solve. This is a problem that I must be on my knees for. I love what it says in verse 2. From the ends of the earth I call to you, and I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. It's the prayer of a poor wretch who has discovered the end of himself. He cries out because there's no power within himself to save himself. He can't get it done, and so he must cry out to God. In fact, it it sort of brings about the picture, the mental idea of a shipwreck. Someone's sailing upon the seas, and the, the wind and the waves have grown larger and larger to the point where the ship has become sunk, and the person is thrown into the sea, and suddenly they're gasping for air, and the waves are rolling, and they think they're going to die, and they're about to suffocate until they see this giant rock jut out of the sea, and they I think, if only I could make it to the rock. If only I could swim over, if only I could scale the peaks, if I could climb onto the rock, I know I would be safe. But the problem is I don't have the power anymore. I don't have the strength anymore. I don't have the stamina anymore. I'm going to be saved. I'm going to be saved by someone else's hand. That's the realization of David as he cries out, guide me, lead me, God. I have no strength left. If David's going to be saved, it's going to be from someone else's hand, someone who is far above himself. It's not going to come from his friends. It's not going to come from his trusted advisors. It's going to come from God or no one. And it's that realization that has David on his knees. And here's the thing about this rock. The rock must be high. If it's a slightly elevated plateau, it will provide no rest or escape for David. The waves will just knock him over. He will be found. The rock must be high. It must be grand and spectacular for it to offer rest. And here's the thing that I notice, and maybe you notice about this yourself as well. Often, often when we cry out in prayer, when we're under persecution or affliction or we're suffering or we're just going through a really hard time, our prayers actually reveal a very weak and small God. That's who we cry out to. Do you notice this about yourself? Maybe when you're crying out to God and you feel like things aren't going your way, that you actually start cursing God because He's not coming through on unspoken prayers. Do you feel like God is too weak or is not able to hold on to every single one of his promises that he has promised he will see through to completion? Who do you turn to when you feel like you're drowning? See, often the reality is that we cry out in prayer and all it reveals is a weak and frail God who is nothing like the God we find in Scripture. God is not weak. He is not frail. He is not a servant to us. He is so far above us. He is the rock that is higher than us. And David knows this. 
David knows the greatness of God. Let me just read a couple of words from Psalm 86, a, a couple of Psalms later. This is from Psalm 86. This is verses 5, uh, verses, oh, there we are, 86. I was going to read from Psalm 85, which is not a pleasant psalm. Anyway, verses 6 and 5. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I am in distress, I call to you because you answer me. Notice, it's a very similar psalm. Then 8, 9, 10. My goodness. Amongst the gods, there is none like you. Lord, no deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name, for you are great and do marvelous deeds, and you alone are God. David knows that the God he worships is spectacular, that he is magnificent, that he is so far above us, that he is grand and incredible. David knows that this is his God. Therefore, when he cries out to him, he knows that God will hold fast to his promises because God is great. And he knows that when he's under affliction and persecution and suffering, that God will see him through to the end because God is great. And he knows that even though he is banished from the center of his world, God is still present because God is great. He knows the greatness of God and it changes everything for him. And how often our prayers reveal something far different. Often our prayers reveal that what we really want from God is a nice life of prosperity. And when suffering and things like this come, it takes the sails from out from under us, revealing that we just really want a nice life. Well, here's the truth. God may have a wonderful plan for your life and it may involve terrible suffering so that people who are watching you see the incomprehensible worth of the treasure of the gospel and that it forces you on your knees and draws you towards God. Because here's the thing, according to the scriptures, that's far more likely than a life of prosperity. Theologically, historically, biblically, suffering produces a great expectation of God far more than, than prosperity does. It's interesting. Pick up the psalm again. What does David say? How does he know that God is great? What does he do? How is he crying out these incredibly deep, rich prayers? What does verse 3 say? For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. David knows the greatness of God because he dwells commonly and often on the past greatness of God. He knows that God will be great now and in the future because he knows that God has been great in the past. If you want your hopes animated, if you want your anxieties lessened, then dwell richly upon how God has been good to you, upon how great God has been, not just in salvation, but throughout all of history, God's plan from Genesis to Revelation, how he is the great I am. Dwell richly upon this. If you want your anxieties lessened, get into the text. Dwell upon the grace that saved you. Sing songs with the saints. It's one of the reasons we come to church, so that we can have our eyes taken off the situation in front of us and we can be reminded of the great songs of the church, the hymns, the words that remind us that God is great even when I am not. 
it's, it's why we gather together and we pray together with people who trust God, right? It's so that when suffering and affliction comes, there's these deep truths about who God is that have been stuffed into our hearts. And when life comes and chops us up, the only thing that comes spilling out isn't blood, but this deep knowledge, this is who God is and therefore I will not sway. I know who God is. He is the rock that is higher than I. Charles Spurgeon again, he said it like this. This is, this is possibly my favorite quote of all time. There is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Then go. Plunge yourself into the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief and sorrow, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. Oh, that that would be true for us that we would throw ourselves into the immensity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and be lost in Him rather than our own situations and scenarios. And what does this look like practically for us? What my mind gets drawn to again and again is this passage in Hebrews 12. This is what it looks like. You might be sitting there going, well, that's fine. That's fine for David. He knows the past goodness of God. I don't quite know how to grow in my trust and appreciation and dependence on God. What does it look like? Well, it looks like this. Hebrews 12, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And this is important, this bit next. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition for sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So how do we not grow weary and lose heart? We fix our eyes on Jesus. This is what it looks like. I remember about two, uh, three, four years ago, I was riding my bike. And unbeknownst to me, I had a chronic health condition. I had chronic gastritis and it stuffed me up for uh, many couple of months. And uh, as, even as I speak, I realize that all of these stories I tell about exercise end with me almost dying. There's probably a moral of a story in there that uh, if you exercise, you might die. So anyway, that's, that's nothing, right? Um, here's the thing. I was in King Lake. You, the King Lake's are far away. It's about an hour away. And King Lake is like the cycling mecca, right? That's where all the cyclists go because it's a nice, long hill. It's about... Uh, seven kilometers long and it's just nice and easy but like it's hard but like it's it's enjoyable and some friends and I had headed out to King Lake and we were headed up the mountain and I knew about two kilometers in that I was struggling you know when you're you're sick and you've got the flu and you're like I I don't feel so good well that that was me and the sweat was rolling down my face and my muscles started to ache and what the only reason that I made it to the top of King Lake was that my friend who I was riding with started, instead of riding next to me, he rode in front of me. 
And so rather than looking at the incredible amount of hill that I still had yet to climb, the 20, 30 minutes of cycling left, and instead of dwelling upon my body which was breaking and aching and sore, I just focused on his wheel. And I filled my mind with nothing but I'm just going to stay on his wheel. I'm just going to stay on his wheel. I'm just going to stay there. And it is the exact same thing for the Christian. Right? I'm not going to look at the immensity of the task ahead. I'm not going to look at the suffering. I'm not going to look at the the trial. I'm not going to look at that thing because I know that I'm just going to fix my eyes on Jesus and here's the rock that is higher than I. Because if I look at that stuff, I'm going to get discouraged and I'm going to lose hope. But if I keep my eyes fixated on Christ, then I know that he's more than this. I know he's great. And I'm not going to fix my eyes on my body, which is breaking down and sore and feeling like it's flagging. I'm not going to fix my eyes on the discouraging thought of how weak I am. I'm said I'm going to fix my eyes on Christ, my Savior, who has endured the cross, and therefore I will not grow weary. He is the rock that is higher than I. That is the task of the Christian. How do you grow in dependence upon Christ? You fix your eyes on Him. So when trials come, we don't fixate on the trial. We fixate on Christ. When our bodies seem weak, we don't fixate on our bodies. We fixate on Christ. When things come which knock us about and cut us up and it feels like we're drowning... We cry out to God, God, help me fixate on Christ. I know that's how I'm going to endure. It's not by getting stronger. It's not by ignoring the situation. It's by focusing on Him who has saved me and secured me and holds me still. Here's the thing. I know. I know our church. One of the great privileges and burdens of being a pastor is that I know what goes on. I know the burdens that many of us face. I know that there are things going on at home which are horrible and terrible. I know that there are family members walking away from Jesus. I know that there are bodies even here now which are failing and flagging. I know that there are mental conditions that we are facing. I know that there are work conditions which are oppressive. But here's the thing. If we do not learn to cast our anxieties on the rock that is higher than I if we do not learn to cast our anxieties on God, we will carry the terrible burden of them everywhere we go. You might notice something about the psalm. first three verses are filled with longing, with crying, with tears and anguish, but the rest of the psalms are psalms of exhortation. It's a psalm of encouragement. You, God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Increase the days of the king's life, his years for many generations. May he be enthroned in God's presence forever. Appoint your love and faithfulness to protect him. Then I will ever sing in praise of your name and fulfill my vows. He's saying, God, I've cried out to you and you've heard my prayers. And therefore I have no need to be anxious. I have no need to be on my knees in tears. No, 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 I will trust you. You are great. You are the rock that is higher than we are. And so our challenge is to cast our anxieties on him who cares for us and leave them there in the resting knowledge that he is great and able and sufficient to fill his promises and to care for our every need. Friends, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray an old prayer. It comes from a, a book called The Valley of Vision. 
And it's just this collection of Puritan prayers, and I was reading it um, earlier this week, and I thought, oh, this is what we need. And it's simply called Need of Jesus. And so I encourage you to sit and dwell and think on these words as I pray them. You might want to get on your knees. I'm going to, uh, if my pants allow me to. Um, right? Um, I'm going to do that. If you want to get on your knees and join me, that's fine. And then we're going to sing some songs. Lord Jesus, I am light, I am blind, be thou my light. I am ignorant, be thou my wisdom. I am self-willed, but be thou my mind. Open my ears to quickly grasp the Spirit's voice and delightfully run after his beckoning hand. Melt my conscience that no hardness remain there. When Satan approaches, may I flee to your wounds and there cease to tremble at all. Be my good shepherd to lead me into the green pastures of the word and cause me to lie down beside the rivers of his comforts. Fill me with peace that no disquieting worldly gales may ruffle the calm surface of my soul. The cross was upraised to be my refuge. And your blood streamed forth to wash me clean. Your death occurred to give me a surety, and your name is my property to save me. By you, all heaven is poured into my heart, but it's too narrow to comprehend your love. I was a stranger, an outcast, a rebel, and a slave, but your cross has brought me near, has softened my heart, has made me the father's child, has admitted me to your family, and has made me a joint heir with Christ. Oh, that I may love you like you love me, that I may walk worthy of you, my Lord, that I may reflect the image of heaven's firstborn. May I always see your beauty with the clear eye of faith and feel the power of your spirit in my heart, for unless he moves mightily in me, no inward fire will be kindled. Father, we cry out this morning, in the knowledge that we need you. There are things that hunt us, that perplex us, that oppress us, that no hand apart from yours can solve. So we come to you on our knees, in tears if need be, for you are the rock that is higher than I. And we know of your past goodness and greatness. So I pray, Father, that you would show yourself as good and great, that we would be able to cast our anxieties onto you and experience the freeing rest that comes from being shorn of them. Father, we thank you that you are great, that you are not small and weak, that you are not frail, but instead you are tremendous and extravagant. Father, I ask that you, you help us repent of all the times when we consider you small, and needy of us. And instead that we would dwell in the richness of the history that you have laid out in Scripture. You are the God, our Creator King. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, with the power of the Spirit, to the glory of the Father. Amen.